I became fascinated with looking at things where they fall in a, for lack of a better word, on a timeline. That's serious stuff that we just talked about. I'm trying to be comic relief, so I'm going to move away from it right now. We need markers to remember what God has done in our lives. Uh, here we go. Here we go. I'm glad I'm around somebody to make fun of. <laughs> because what you see when you begin to look at history is that we're all connected. It's good stuff. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Featuring Angie Ferris, I'm your host, Frank Rains Jr., along with producer Wes. Thanks for joining us. All right. Hey, it's episode 49. This is Frank Rains Jr., and you're listening to the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. If you've gotten all the way through the intro and you're just now realizing that's what you're listening to, I don't know what that why that happened, but... I'm Frank. I'm here along with producer Wes, Wes the Sketch, producing History of the Eyes of Faith podcast. But we would not have the Eyes of Faith podcast if it weren't for this content. The, the creating the creator of all this content is Dr. Angie Ferris, and she just happens to be with us here as well today. Say hello, Angie. Hello, Angie. Oh, yeah, I didn't say it right. I didn't say it right that time, but that's okay. It doesn't have to be yes. the same every time. And I don't know how I feel about the doctor thing. I don't have my pufta. She doesn't have her pufta. I don't have it. She does not have her pufta, which would be the PhD. I get it. And that's okay. I know. Hey, guys, I don't mean to be slinging around the doctor term for those that do have their pufta. Okay, so we'll just, I'll take it out. But she's an honorary doctorate. Doctor. She's an honorary doctor with her honorary doctorate. I just bestowed that upon you. Well, there you go. So episode 49, my gosh, it's going to be almost 50. What are we going to do for 50? Celebrate. Celebrate 50. Yeah, we've got a lot of fun. Um, anna- 50. we got some fun announcements coming up on 50, some new things, new interactions with our listening audience. Coming up on 50. Yeah, and but, have a little party. And this, and this is 49. And we'll have some content. Content. Okay, good. Well, speaking of content, we ended 48 little bit of a cliffhanger we had a can you want to you want to get us up to speed on what happened on the content or on the gift oh, well you can tell us what the content from 48 we we were up well i can well we're st- yeah we're starting to talk about the tribes that are moving out of the north into the mostly the western roman empire and uh, particularly a group called the huns and we were just getting started the with the huns mm-hmm. with a gentleman named attila yeah so hmm you don't hear that name much anymore. No. I never grew up with a kid named Attila. No, it's kind of a scary name. When you hear about him, you can see why you wouldn't name Attila. your child that. Attila. It's kind of like Adolf. Not something uh, you would be. You don't hear that as no, much anymore. No, you don't. You know, he ruined it for everybody. <laughs> yep. Hmm, I hate that. So um, we ended episode 48 also with the mystery bag. It had something in the gift. A little gift. It, for, it is for you. Oh, well, thank you. It's oh. an Elvis cookie. Mm-hmm. And are you wondering why I have it, or do you already know? Well, I know a little bit. I, I'm, I can. I don't know why you have it. I know that you have been doing thing this things this weekend that have to do with Elvis. So I figured it has something well, to do with that. I wasn't doing things. Here's how it goes. And it was on the episode. I don't know what episode. We can go back and listen. Uh, I talk, we talked about it on here. Yeah, it was quite a while back. In uh, in Na- there was the Nashville Elvis Festival. It happened over the last four days. It's still happening today, as a matter of fact. Oh, cool. 
And um, from what I learned, I didn't do a lot of research on this, but what I learned is it's kind of like when you do like a, a, a beauty pageant where you have like a Miss Tennessee that goes on to Miss USA. Right. And then you might have a Miss Franklin or a Miss Hendersonville or Miss goes Nashville Miss that goes to Miss Tennessee. And they're sanctioned by that organization. Right. Okay. So Graceland has an organization for the Ultimate Elvis Tribute Artist Contest. Wow, cool. So there are different groups that are get certified to say our festival is part of the sanctioned Ultimate Elvis Tribute like Artist. Like being part of the Miss America Network. Right, what I just said. Yeah. That's what I just said. I'm just lining I, it back Actually, up. I said Miss USA. Okay. But same idea. Yeah. So this Nashville Elvis Festival happens every year. And it didn't happen in 21 or 20 because of COVID. The last one was 19. So then they had the 22 this past week. And what it is is that you have these tribute artists come in and emulate the king. Uh, they actually made a distinction that you don't, you're not going to be an impersonator. You're actually going to be a tribute artist. There's like they, like sometime in two, I think 2007 or 13 or something, they said, we're going to make sure that this is not an impersonator. This is a tribute artist so that you don't try to be Elvis. You just tribute him by singing like him or trying to emulate his performance. Okay. I don't mean to get in the weeds on that, but I just kind of find that interesting. I'm an impersonator. Right. But. Well, if you're a tribute artist, you're not going to do anything that wouldn't be a tribute to him. Right. An impersonator might. Might do whatever. Yeah. Might not have to be that good. Maybe. Yeah. So, um. So anyway, it was they. So last night I went to the finals. Oh, cool! So the finals were. I was expecting like there's going to be three to five people that have gotten through the finals, and then they were going to vote on who the winner was to represent the Nashville Elvis Festival in great at Graceland when they do the national competition, which I don't know when that is. Right. Um, sometime this year. Um, but after the contest, after the finals. Then there was going to be a concert last night by the winner of 19. Oh. Because every year the previous winner does their show. Right. The the national winner comes to the, or just the, the winner. winner of the Nashville one. Okay. Does it. his show. Right. Okay. So, cool. um, so last night, Rhonda and I go, we get there thinking enough time. It's general admission, but we hardly were able to find two seats. We're wow. on the very back row, but we liked our seats. They were just, which is all that was left when we got there, and it was convenient to get in and out anyway. Um, and so the the other part of the story that's pretty cool, and which I brought up on the podcast before, is that the MC of this contest, which has been the MC for years, yes, uh, is someone you went to high school with, right? A friend, a friend, and you and your husband both went to high school with him, and I remember him as a young kid in my early teens. Or even younger than that, because... Yeah, you would have been younger than that when he was, like, coming over to our house, if you remember him yeah. from then. so he's the host. So my plan is to go see this and reconnect with him mm-hmm. and watch the show and enjoy it, because I like Elvis, and I, I like the fact that these are tribute artists that are probably going to be pretty good. He comes out, he does, like, a little song at the beginning, not trying to do Elvis, just kind of singing, getting the crowd going, tries to be funny a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying tries, he's funny. Yeah. And uh, but I guess try to work the audience. Now these are people that have been there 
for a couple of days in a row. Right. So there's a relationship. And from watching his Facebook be, yeah, it looks like they know him and it's like a group of people that love going to these things and yeah. travel to go to them. Yeah. So he's a personality to them because he sees them all the time. Right. So then he goes over and he's kind of a host. He sits at a little podium and he gives the bios of the contestants there in the finals. There were 10. Wow. Finals. 10 artists that each would do two songs. So right off the gate, you're going to hear 20 songs. 20 Elvis songs. And they've got a band. You know, and do they have to do different songs? Like if somebody... Claims- I didn't hear any of the songs twice. Well, okay. So maybe they did have a deal where you signed up. Probably sure. you had yeah. to have two, you know, and they had to pick the right ones. Right. So they go through all 20. Then they do an intermission. All 20 songs. All 10 finalists. They do an intermission. Come back. And it's time for the show of the guy's name was Al Jocelyn previous winner so he does his show now who was interesting and i don't take too much time here but one of the judges has a guy named larry strickland who sang with jd sumner and the stamps mm-hmm. quartet yeah and sang with elvis like dozens and dozens of shows he was one of the judges for the for al jocelyn's a concert he got up and sang back up oh cool too. and so that was pretty neat um and uh He's a bass singer. So uh, that was pretty cool. So show was fantastic. I had a great time. Before the show started, I went around and I found a security guy. And I said, I want to meet Tom Brown after the show. I have a connection. We both grew up in Tupelo. And, you know, he, he went to high school with my sister. He goes, you don't need to tell me the story. Just meet me here after the show. I'll give him a message now that there's someone here that has a connection. And then you can meet him after the show. I said, great. So we watched the show. Um, after the show, after the, it, I mean, this, it so was, then did they announce the winner after this guy's performance? They announced it before. Oh, cool. They brought him back up and no, 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 no. They announced it after the performance. They announced it after the performance. Let me tell you about what happened. Oh, I have a lot of, uh, let me just give you a taste. I mean, this is, there were several good good guys but this is just so elvis um his final concert in real life was uh he he went over and sat down at the piano and he played unchained melody and sang it wow it was his finest his final number well the guy that did his concert ended it by y'all mind if i go play the piano and he, he had a great banter great he was loose but his voice sounded like elvis when he was talking his personality oh lord have mercy you know we go and it was just very much you Real. felt like you were yeah, watching it yeah. he had larry strickland sing with him and on the fly he goes i didn't know larry was going to sing with me tonight this is going to be exciting i bet you don't know i bet you guys don't know way down and the band knew way down so they played this song way down and and strickland sang the bass line in it and it just was cool he goes over and he sits at the piano well tom's role in this as is almost the charlie hodge charlie hodge was a friend of elvis that was always on stage with him, handing him his scars, handing his guitar, giving yeah. him water and stuff. Yeah. So Tom is kind of that role in the concert. Right. And putting scarves around Elvis's neck, and Elvis is giving them to the people, girl, ladies coming down the front. I mean, they did the whole thing. Well, then he goes, y'all mind if I play the piano and sit down? He go, and he does the Unchained Melody at the end, and Tom holds the mic for him, because this is what happened in real life. But this is just a, I'll put my phone up to the microphone so you can hear what, Al Jocelyn sounds like at the piano. Stand by me, your Lord. I need 
Anyway, it was good. It sounds like it. He was really good. And there are a lot of other guys. So, and I was talking with Rhonda on the way there. I'm like, if I'm going to choose an Elvis to watch, it will be Aloha from Hawaii or the 70s Elvis, the Vegas Elvis. I like 50s Elvis and I like 60s Elvis. But if I'm going to have to pick, I want that Elvis. I want the late 70s Elvis. Yeah. The way he acted, talked, his voice. So they had contestants that were just the 50s Elvis. But they did sound like him. They moved like him. They had that whole dance thing and the hip yeah. thing down. They had the 60s Elvis too. But the winner last night happened to be more of a 70s Elvis. So they had five places. They had fifth place, fourth, third, second, first. And, well, fourth, first, second, and then the winner. And Tom Brown goes, all right, and in fifth place... He names, I'm going to say your name and you step forward. In fifth place, he names a guy who steps forward. And he goes, wait, step back. Let me start over. In fifth place, name a different guy. Fourth place, different guy. Third, second. First. The winner was the guy he named fifth first by accident. Really? Yeah. And he didn't even comment on it after he did it. It was that whole Steve Harvey, Steve Harvey moment like from the Grammys or Oscars or whatever yeah. it was. Or when they read the wrong name. He didn't even comment on it. He just went on with it. And I probably would have done a little different. I would have said, how about a round of applause for everybody and say all their names, let them each get an applause so they all know the audience liked each one of them, you know, yeah. and then comment on the fact like, hey, I messed up. Let's just, you know, he didn't. But the winner, the guy that won wasn't my favorite, but there were so many good ones and I won't play any more clips, but there were so many good ones that I would say probably four or five of the 10, I would have said, Oh, that's my favorite. And then the next guy come up like, no, 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 he's my favorite. Oh, that's cool. So there were moments during the whole thing. So it was a great night. I'll end it with this. Uh, Tom Brown, we connected after the show, <clears throat> told him about you and our podcast. And I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. I used to come over to your house on Friday nights and Love Boat and Fantasy Island would be on. And we'd turn the sound off and we'd do our, <laughs> own, we so would do our own dialogue. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I remember that. I remember you coming and he goes, oh yeah, and you look like your dad. Yeah, your dad was on Carson and um, I loved Carson and your dad was on there and you look like him and we'll give Angie my best. And I said, well, how do I get in contact with you? And so uh, he gave me his uh, contact information. So then we're leaving, and the guy that headlined is standing back there with his wife and his new little baby and meeting people. And I walked up to him, and I said, hey, man, not only did you sound great, but your dialogue, your banter back and forth was good. And he's like, oh, thank you. You know, it's just off the cuff, kind of, you know. And, and he still kind of had that little bit of the Elvis it's voice. kind of who you know? he is. Yeah, kind of who he is. And I said, well, I grew up in Tupelo with Tom. And he goes, oh, I, I'm from, I'm from my wife's from Mississippi, and we live down in Texas, and, you know, we're going to be back. And what's your name? And we're talking to him, and he's like, we're going to be back up here. And, Frank, we got a private birthday uh, at the uh, f at the Franklin Theater in November. Maybe I can get you all backstage or something like that. And, and you know, like like he's our buddy now. <laughs> then he goes, hey, will you all mind taking a picture of me and my wife and my baby? So we're holding the phone while he's taking a picture, and I'm making the baby smile and laugh. And, oh, also, he goes, I said, my name is Frank. He goes, you know, that's my dad's name. I said, well, it's mine, too. I'm a junior. He goes, well, I'm a junior, too. My first name is Frank. My middle name is Al. I go by Al, but I'm a Frank Jr., too. I said, well, hey, I'll message you, and I'll, re I'll reference Frank Jr. so you'll remember. He goes, okay, yeah. So now I'm buddies with him. That's cool. Well, how many backstage stories do you have? I, but I'm not buddies with him, but I'm going to try to. Well, that's cool. Him. I'm glad you got to talk to Tom. Yeah. Wish we could have been there. Yeah. Well, it's already on the calendar for next year at the factory. Well, we should go with you. Yeah. 
I wish you remember that. Well, I was playing the some of the clips for one of my boys earlier today, and he's like, "Oh, I wish I'd have gone to that. That's that looks like fun," because all of them were really good. Yeah. And some of the impersonators from the '50s, Elvis, were um, 18, 19 years old. But I tell which you, which he was right. Yeah. It was really yeah. Well, young. yeah. But anyway, took up too much time on the podcast. Well, about I'm the glad. Elvis cookie. Yes, and, thank you for the cookie. And uh, that was given to me from the lady at Merch. I bought a m- coffee mug. She goes, here, let me give you this cookie. You can have it. It's fine. <laughs> you can have it. It's you fine. know what they sold at the Merch stand? In the in Elvis's TV room at Graceland downstairs, uh, one of the fixtures on one of the tables is a little ceramic monkey that he has. In, in Graceland, you can see Right. It. Well, they have a replica that they sell at the Merch station. And I'm like, I got to have that for my house. And it's two hundred dollars. Oh my goodness! So they kept that. I didn't get that. You didn't have to have it. I didn't have to have. I thought it. you had to have it, but I didn't have to have it. I didn't have to have it. Not right now. <laughs> um. Anyway, that was so. That was last night. Cool, cool story. And I just started. I've been listening to Elvis, and you know, now I'm. I'm. I've had Elvis. I've had a lot of Elvis. Right. It'd be interesting when we get our. Let us know if you like Elvis, folks. Like you know. Yeah, we grew up with a lot. Well, not that he was played in our house. I think our mom liked him, but it was we moved to Tupelo and it was his birthplace, and it just became a part. You know, I realized that we moved there just a month before he died. Oh, I remember the day he died. I rem- and I remember the difference at his birthplace when he was alive, and then after he died. Oh, I can't. Yeah, that you know the spot that it became and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But oh, mm-hmm. and my. Uh, well, I don't know if you know this, but some of our friends at my friends in at our church in Mississippi, their mother went to elementary school with Elvis, and she had a picture of a fifth grade picture of Elvis she had in her wallet. That's pretty cool. Or maybe it's fourth grade. Well, you know, yeah. I went to which my, was right up the street from where Tim's parents live. Was where he went, which is where I went to. Yeah. to middle school, junior high. Yeah, to the same school he went to. Cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, that's right, baby. Okay, we ready to jump in? One of the things he would say, Lord have mercy. Yeah, all right. Lord have mercy. Uh, yeah, we can jump in. We can jump, well, we're way into 49. Yeah, so here we go. Right. Um, I wanted to go back and pick up a couple of things that I realized as we were talking, like, oh my gosh, I'd found some really cool information on this and I hadn't integrated it into my notes. So I want to go back to that. You know, we talked about the Silk Roads. We talked about the book, The Silk Roads, but what are the Silk Roads, Frank? Or the Silk Road. The Silk Road, from my memory, from what we've learned on here, is a was basically. Uh, you can. How about me throwing this out? Natchez Trace. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, the Natchez Trace goes from Nashville to Natchez, Mississippi, and it was a, a Native American pathway to transfer goods and well not just that it was like a highway yeah to get and big point was it goes all the way down to the gulf so you could get yeah so the silk roads not that it was called the silk road back then it was but i think it was a way from the the eastern world like the asia type that would be asia to now particularly china china it was a way uh, of of communication physical communication moving back and forth between the Middle East, of what we would call now the Middle East, but, you know, the ancient areas of mm-hmm. the Bible. What do you call, what's that word for that? There's ancient, there's a word that means ancient biblical times. I don't know. I can't know. think of it right now. From that area uh, yeah. to the east, yeah. it was a silk road. Right. So, Wes, if you can and throw that comes from first picture up trading there. trading silk. Right? Yeah, which came from 
China. China. It was a product. So this is a picture that I found that is from, I think they date on this was like 200 BC to 200 AD, but it's actually a um, drawing of the roads, you know, like a, on a map saying here is where this path was and this path. And so this, I thought that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And this one in particular, um, you can see there's the Roman Empire, the Parthian Empire, the Kushan Empire, and the Han Dynasty, which is in China Dynasty. And what the author was saying at this point was this: these were the protectors of that roadway. So it those was communities, those those, cities, those empires, empires okay. because they were all benefiting from it. And you can see the sea routes there too. So it goes all the way from the Mediterranean yeah. over to the East China Sea. Well, to the to Central China. Back and forth, and and we talked about how religions traveled on that road. Um, we talked. You were talking about the Pony Express thing in in your last um, episode. Ideas traveled on the road. Goods traveled on the road. Merchants would actually set up booths on the road. You well, know, of it, course. it created all of these. So I just thought that was cool like to a have a map of that market here and there. Yeah, flea market. We'll throw that up, and then an. Another thing that's kind of an interesting background. So these tribes of the steppes have been there for centuries Um, in one form or another. Just anyway, I was doing some backstory on these tribes and like, where did they come from? What's going on? How does that relate? And and I want to go dive deep into all that information. But something I did find that was very interesting, if you'll throw that um next slide up there Wes with the they have discovered linguists have discovered by doing a um, working backwards I'm not a linguist so I can't tell you this that there's an original language of that's they call proto-indo-european and the people who spoke that language lived in that and on our map, what we're looking at is between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea on the and north of there. Okay. Okay. So that's Here's what we were talking about in the ex- previous episode. Exactly. So that's the of area. Of the wall. Yeah. That's the area where people come in. You can see the blue describes, mm-hmm. marks the area. And you can see on the southern border, those mountains. Those are the Caucasus Mountains that we mm-hmm. were talking about where the, where the wall yeah. was. Okay. I think that's interesting because it's spelled the same way as Caucasian. Oh, so it's probably where it came from. Yeah, it's kind of interesting in it. Anyway, so then if you throw the next slide up there, Wes, this is a picture showing that 75% of the current languages in the world came from this proto-Indo-European language of 5,000 B.C. Most of the languages. Look, you can see English. See, like if you trace those fans out. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's 75% of the languages on the earth right now came from that group. I just find that so interesting. Well, you know what makes me think of? I thought you were going to go down the path of the Tower of Babel. Well, yeah. Um, But Proto-Indo-European, and I'm looking at the core, it's like Germanic, Celtic, Celtic. Italic. Yeah. Later on, he describes it and divides it into three major groups. But he's but a lot. The reason they can trace them back is because their words for certain things are so similar. Yeah. And here's what's cool: the certain things are the animals and the plants and the things that would be found in that region of the world. 
Wow. And they have the same where I just thought that was a cool study. It's, it's very neat. Very interesting. So we'll throw those pictures up on social media where you guys can see them, but just kind of neat. So now it's interesting to look at the languages that he lists on the, that, that are primarily, I guess, the current languages. Well, we the one on to. the outside would be current languages. See what that's I'm what saying? I mean. That's what I mean. If you go all the way out, yeah, they go all the way around, and that's just a lot of languages. It is. But there's really not like any change to those core languages, some of them, because I guess no one speaks them anymore. That's probably true. But it's yeah. phonetic. Yeah. Uh, what is that? Phrygian. Yeah. I'm going to take Phrygian, too, this year. <laughs> I signed up for Phrygian. Anyway, pretty interesting. Pretty you know, interesting. A version of Albanian is Tosk. I, I just find that little... Put that on the Instawebs. I am. I'm going to put, put it that all on out the there. Snapgrams. The Snapgrams. That sounds like a breakfast cereal. It is. Okay, so that's just a little background. Um, some interesting information. We're all very connected. All very connected. Which we've said in the first. You probably heard it when you listen to the intro again. Let you fast forward it. Yeah. I would fast forward it at this point. But. Um. So, and hey, we might be changing that up too. Hey, who knows? Might be. So jumping back to the Huns, we're in the middle of the 5th century, and we were just starting to talk about how uh, this tribe was moving in and how they were really mean. I don't know if we got into that. Well, we so didn't get got, the details. I'm interested so, in the details so we got of how some, mean they were. So we got the Huns caused pure terror. They are the seedbed of evil, wrote one Roman writer, and exceedingly savage. Trained from youth to cope with extreme cold, hunger, and thirst, they dressed in the skins of field mice that were stitched together. They would eat roots and raw flesh, which would be partially warmed by being placed between their thighs. Mm. Yeah, I wish y'all could have seen the delivery <laughs> of like... that. Placed between their thighs. <laughs> and then arms crossed, squeezed together with a look of disdain. Like, my gosh. That, what was it they were placing? Did you catch that? Human flesh. Raw flesh. Raw flesh. Raw flesh. Didn't say human. Just raw. Not cooked. Mm -mm. They had no interest in agriculture, noted another, and only wanted to steal from their neighbors, enslaving them in the process. They were like wolves. I'd like to hear about these folks. Like, well, how, did they, how did they become a thing? <laughs> like, how do you just become that? Well, maybe it had to do with the conditions you were living in and not being exposed to things to encourage you to be otherwise. That's Maybe that's where you... That's a good question. Maybe the more appropriate question is, how, why are we not that? Well, you know, I haven't shared this with you yet on the podcast, but I've recently began to listen to another book that I read years ago, Mere Christianity. Oh, yeah. And the beginning of the book comes from C.S. Lewis. You know, he, he was an atheist. And it's talking about, it's basically radio shows that he did <clears throat> in the 40s that they just put in print and made it a book. And he was basically explaining how people, why to believe in God and then why believe that Jesus is the Son of God. <clears throat> but believing in God for him is a, for, is a core fundamental, he, I guess I have to listen to it some more, but an, an innate nature of a, of a human nature. That's what the Bible teaches. Of good and evil, like something is fair or unfair. As a small infant, without being taught anything, if something's taken from taken from you, you yeah. have an innate response to that. So I just think of these Huns. Like, how did they just become the opposite? 
of well maybe the question is why aren't we like that i I think it's more what you're what they haven't been exposed to yeah it's interesting yeah i think so too so the huns scarred the cheeks of infant boys when they were born in order to prevent facial hair growing later in life while they spent so long on horseback that their bodies were grotesquely deformed they looked like animals standing on their hind legs now horses were raised in this steppe region and so these people were on horses not just the huns but others but they're saying they're on it so well, what long. are you reading from the silk roads oh i don't remember i think but i'm is. imagining someone in a horse stance like they're riding a horse yeah but then they're walking around like yeah. that. Yeah. So he said, although it is tempting to dismiss such comments as signs of bigotry, examinations of skeletal remains show that the Huns practiced artificial cranial deformation on their young, bandaging the skull to flatten the frontal and occipital bones by applying pressure to them. This caused the head to grow in a distinctly pointed manner. It was not just the behavior of the Huns that was terrifyingly out of the ordinary. So was the way they looked. That's weird. Yep. The arrival of the Huns spelt serious danger for the eastern half of the Roman Empire, which had thus far been relatively unscathed by the upheavals that devastated much of Europe. The provinces of Asia Minor, Asia Minor Syria, and Palestine, and Egypt were still intact, as was the magnificent city of Constantinople. Taking no chances, the Emperor Theodosius II surrounded the city with formidable defenses, including a huge set of land walls to protect it from attack. That was Constantinople. And those land wall walls lasted for centuries. They were great protection. So that would have been on the west side of Constantinople to -hmm. protect from that incursion from the west from those tribes. These walls and the narrow strip of water separating Europe from Asia proved to be crucial. Okay. The, I'm going to have a bad, I'm going to have a nightmare with these Huns. Okay, well, we're not through with them head. yet. Now we're going to talk about, you it, can look up pictures. They do really look that way. So we're going to talk about Attila. He was king of the Huns from 4, 434 to 53, ruling jointly with his elder brother until 445. He was one of the greatest of the barbarian rulers who assailed the Roman Empire. Hey, Wes, could you look up what barbarian means? I used to know off the top of my head, and it's not what you would think. So I want to put that out there. He was one of the greatest of the barbarian rulers who assailed the Roman Empire. He and his brother, Belida, inherited an empire that stretched from the Alps and the Baltic nearly to the Caspian Sea. The failure of the Romans to pay promised tributes prompted Attila to launch assaults along the Danube in 441 and 443. He murdered his brother in 445 and two years later invaded the Balkan provinces and Greece. I'm not liking Attila. Yeah, yeah. And jumping back to the barbarian definition, it means originally meant anyone that was a foreigner. So mm-hmm. you would mm-hmm. speak that way of anyone, you know, they were barbarian. Yeah, like they in Middle Tennessee, we've got a lot of barbarians from California. <laughs> but Which now, is kind of an interesting connection because Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of california yeah we should just and he played conan the barbarian yeah so we should just try this little game sometime like okay draw draw the line between this and this frank please because i think you can do it through almost anything let's do it right now anyway but now if you use the word barbarian and it means somebody that's uncivilized uncultured uh maybe even savage and that's because of this time period the word barbaric can only mean it, it only means in my opinion it might be somebody would disagree but 
based on the original meaning, meant somewhere from out. But barbaric, I think, only means savage. Yeah. Well, it comes from this time. That's how it gets that meaning. Yeah. So. (laughs) What you going to do with the bag, Frank? I just wanted you to cut your eyes over that at it again. I'm cutting. Okay. So, back to Attila. So, he's murdered his brother, and he's launched assaults across the Danube. Oh, back to the Rhine, too. We talked about the Rhine River. It runs from, like, up in uh, the Netherlands down through Germany, around the side of Germany, and up into Switzerland. So, that's pretty far to the west when they made it all the way to the yeah. Rhine. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, after setting himself up just to the north of the Danube, Attila ravaged the Balkans for 15 years, extracting heavy tribute from the government in Constantinople, which would be the Eastern Roman Empire, in return for not advancing further and securing vast amounts of gold. So they were paying him not to invade mm-hmm. from the Eastern Empire. Well, yeah, it's kind of like organized crime. Yeah, I think you're going to enjoy this story. Until that time, Attila had been on good terms with the Western Roman Empire, thanks in part to his relationship with one of the generals. That changed in 450, however, when Princess Honoria, it's spelled like honor, H-O-N-O-R-I-A. Honora. Honoria. I-A, Honoria. Uh Honoria, sister of the Western Roman Emperor Valentinian III, appealed to Attila for help. Honoria wanted to escape an arranged marriage to an aristocrat that her brother was forcing on her. And I read it was like an elderly senator. And her brother was the emperor. Yes. And I think that they were, she was maybe smarter than him and everybody knew it. But because he was the male, he was the emperor. And so she was trying to find a place and and he wanted to marry her off to this aging senator to kind of. So far, why do you think I'm going to really like this story? Because it's just something out of the ordinary. Okay, I thought you were going to say something else, but okay. I'm going to say it. She sent, so, she sent a message to Attila along with a ring asking him to come save her, but Attila interpreted it as a betrothal. Of course he did. So now he thinks that he is engaged to the emperor's sister. Is Attila a little slow? Or did he just No, no. I mean, the ring came. Yeah. Well, you're dealing with different cultures, right? Yeah. The Hunnic king claimed on honoria as his newest bride he had multiple brides and demanded half of the roman western western roman empire as her dowry now i wonder what honoria thought about this i think she went oh i might have messed up a little bit here i think we just i didn't mean it like that she's like okay so emperor valentinian the third refused but attila was not one to give up easily and waged war against the western roman empire I, okay, keep going. And some people think that that was that Honoria was just an excuse to invade the West. I thought you were going to say I was going to like it because it sounded like Game of Thrones or House of Cards, and and it does. Well, see, I don't know those shows very well, so therefore I wouldn't. But right, it's but the whole idea of an emperor's sister betrothed to marry someone else, she doesn't want to, so she goes and gets this other guy and connives to say, hey, I want you to come help me, and then he interprets. It just sounds like... Yeah, and it's not just any other guy. It's the guy who's ravaging the world at this point. Yeah. Which is kind of going more than just a little bit above his head, right? In the spring of 451, Attila launched an attack on Gaul, which is France, with 200,000 of his men. Did he use stones? 
I don't know. Because oh, there we go. Yes. I don't know. I'm sure he didn't. He had horses and weaponry. They they were defeated because they were pelted by gallstones. He went up against the Roman army, led by his old ally, General Aetius, who had joined forces with the Visigoths and Gaul's other barbaric tribes, the Franks, the Burgundians, and the Alans. So now the other barbaric tribes that have invaded are joining with the Romans to fight against Attila. The armies finally clashed at the famous Battle of Catalunian Plains. In the end, the Visigoth king Theodorid died, and most of the Western Roman army was destroyed, but the Allied forces against the Huns held ground. Mm. Attila retreated his army back to Central Europe. The battle is largely considered Attila's first and only battlefield lost. loss. It was by a coalition made up of many long-term en- enemies of the Huns. At the Battle of Catalonian Plains in what is now central France, in 451, Attila was defeated by a large force that including an astonishing array of races drawn from the peoples of the steppes. Wow, so they came together and defeated him. Right, so but he... Catalonian? Catal- Catalonian. C-A-T-A-L-A-U-N-I-A-N. Catalonian Plains. Okay. Despite the failed... What was the name of the... What was the name of the uh, little place you went in East Tennessee? Catalucci. Okay. Yeah. I got distracted. I'm telling you, if you were down in there and somebody came in, there would be no escape. But you said Catalonian, and I was thinking Catalucci. Yeah. I thought we were going to randomly come back to that. No. Despite the failed campaign in De Gaulle, Attila launched an attack on Italy the very next year in 452. He, he sacked both Milan and Achillea, among other places. So now it takes an interesting turn. Now we're going to kind of jump back into church history because Attila enters into that. Did he become a Christian? He didn't. Not that we know he did not. But <laughs> check this out. So this is from the Church History in Plain Language book. In June 452, Attila the Hun advanced on Rome. So this is that same battle where he's coming into Italy. A sudden raid over the Alps brought him into northern Italy, where he met with resistance at only a few places. The weakened Roman army kept out of range, and the population fled. So people were just running from him. In spite of persistence, and mutiny, Attila drove his horses and men on. At a fordable spot on the Po River, Attila met an embassy from Rome, the usual peace delegation. So Rome's sending out a peace delegation. He was about to send them away when he heard that Bishop Leo was there as an emissary for the Roman emperor. So this is the bishop of Rome at the time. His name is Leo. And he's there as an emissary for the Roman emperor. It's an emissary, like to speak on behalf? Yes, like an ambassador. Now, here's a note. For most of the time that the empire was divided, the Western headquarters was not in Rome. The emperor would live different places. Okay? Mm -hmm. Because you think about it, when you're divided, Rome is not toward the center of the empire. So, the emperor wasn't even in Rome. Leo's going out to speak on behalf of the emperor. Leo was commissioned to negotiate with one of the mighty men of the panic-stricken world in the hope of avoiding chaos. He must save what was 
what here what there was to save. He must save what there was to save. The Roman emperor was doing nothing to preserve the ancient capital of the empire and its surrounding territories from devastation. So Peter's deputy, okay, you understand that reference? The bishop is being referred to as Peter's deputy, meaning in line of the apostolic fathers. Of Peter in particular, Peter. because Peter was the apostle in Rome. Okay. Mm-hmm. I get so points for that. I get points. To yeah, two points. So Peter's deputy, now acting in the name of the emperor, sat facing Attila alone. Man to man, the contest seemed unequal. On the one side, the law of conquest. On the other, the law of faith. On the one side, triumph over the wounded, the ravaged, the dying. On the other, submission to the divine mysteries of the church. A foreign king and a ruling pope. That's interesting. It is, isn't it? Long before the arrival of the embassy from Rome, Attila probably made up his mind about further military thrusts. Epidemics in this army, in his army added to widespread famine were forcing him to break off the advance. So he's probably thinking already they need to break it off. But nobody knew that. So he willingly granted an interview to the imperial envoy, and in the course of it he granted the Pope's pleas that the capital should be spared. Hmm. He even promised to withdraw from Italy, and he kept his word. The Bishop of Rome had assumed a new role and staked a fresh claim on the future. Yeah. So who saves Rome? The Bishop. Leo. By appearances. Yeah. Which... Yeah, which matters. Yeah. In AD 453, Attila died in bed, supposedly due to a nosebleed caused by a brain hemorrhage after a heavy feast and drinking on his wedding night to a new German bride. His sons took control of his empire, which collapsed shortly after Attila's death. Wow. Celebrating excessively, says one contemporary, he, quote, lay down on his back, sodden with wine and sleep, suffered a brain hemorrhage, and died in his sleep. So, there you go. There you go. So, the end of Attila, and it's kind of interesting how that coincides with what we're going to be calling the beginnings of papal primacy. Okay, meaning the Pope being papal, Mm -hmm. primacy being first, being led by the Pope rather than the Emperor, possibly. Possibly. Or having as equal say. Possibly. Well, yeah, we'll see where it's going. And and also, well, we're, yes. But so the people of the time were like, hey, the bishop really saved us and took care of us and was able to get Attila not to attack. So let's, let's... Let's allow bishops, popes to lead us more often. Well, I think there was a vacuum there. The emperor was not showing up. The emperor and the Roman authorities were no longer able to protect them. And so the bishop of Rome stepped into that role by meeting. Mm. And, and there's a little bit more about that, too. So, so I'll talk a little bit about it for a minute. Um, when we're thinking about this concept we need to we have to separate the honor of the church of rome from the authority of its head okay the early centuries of christian history offer abundant evidence of rome's prominence among the churches of the western regions of the empire okay so so rome had been looked up to throughout the early centuries of christian history that was already known and so honor in rome is not the same thing as giving the Bishop of Rome authority over 
other churches. They're just saying Rome held a place of honor. Honor surrounded her name for several reasons. First, it was the imperial capital, the eternal city. And the Church of Rome was the largest and wealthiest church with a reputation for orthodoxy and charity. It stood without a rival in the West. Now, when you say the Church of Rome, mm-hmm. is that a single place or is it doesn't, it's not referring to a place? No, it's referring to the city of Rome. I get that. Right. But if you say the Church of Nashville, is it there's, all the churches in Nashville? There's only are, one church at this time. I know. I'm being specific about a building. Yeah, I don't think there was just one building, but I don't I don't think there was just one building because Constantine built churches. When they say the Church of Rome, they're talking about the, I got you. the Christians in Rome they could who also, were all under the authority of that bishop, remember, because there weren't other churches. Right, and they could also say the Roman Empire because the Church of Rome and the Roman Empire are the same. No, right? this is talking about the city of Rome. Throughout the Roman Empire, there were other cities that had bishops. Okay, okay, I got you. Now. So when we're saying the Church the of Roman Rome, church. Yeah. we're talking about the church in the city of Rome, the gotcha. eternal city. Gotcha. Okay, so it had because it was the imperial capital, it had honor because of that. Second, despite of persecutions of all kinds, the Roman congregation quickly grew in numbers and significance. By the middle of the third century, its membership probably approached thirty thousand. So then, just as today, size meant influence. Third, several early Christian writers referred to Peter and Paul as founders of the church in Rome and to subsequent bishops as successors of the apostles. Many Catholic Christians felt that a list of bishops traced back to Peter and Paul was a sure means of safeguarding the apostolic message. In theory, the bishops from the churches were all equal, but in practice, this was seldom the case. Okay? The pastors of the churches established by the apostles possessed an informal spiritual prestige. And the bishops from larger cities exercised authority in certain matters over the pastors from smaller towns. It's kind of the way it worked. As the church grew, it adopted quite naturally the structure of the empire. So we can kind of let that sit in a minute. It emulated the structure of the empire? It, it adopted, adopted the structure of the empire. Yeah. This meant that the provincial town of the empire became the Episcopal town of the church. So whatever was the leading town in that area of the empire became the leading town of the church in that area. Um, The empire was divided into several major regions. So within the church, people came to think of the church at Rome exercising authority in Italy. Carthage, so the church at Rome was authority in Italy. The church in Carthage, the authority in North Africa. The church in Alexandria, the authority in Egypt. The church in Antioch, the authority in Syria, and so on. Okay? Mm. Thus, by 325, the policy of patriarchates, that is the administrator, the administration of church affairs by bishops from three or four major cities, was confirmed by a council, which was okay. actually, I think, Nicaea. Yeah. So... There's that structure has evolved where, and so, so the bishop of a, of like at Constantinople was called the patriarch of Constantinople. Right. The patriarch of Rome, the patriarch. Okay. Mm-hmm. In 330, Constantine moved his imperial residence to the new Rome, which we know the ancient city of Byzantium on the Bosporus and named it Constantinople, which shifted the political center of gravity to the east. Yeah. And so as that city's power increased, 
so did the political importance of the church's power there, and it caused a decline in the importance of old Rome since it was no longer the imperial headquarters. Okay, no, he died not long after three thirty, right? Yeah, not long. Um, and I'd actually seen a little bit earlier date for that, maybe three twenty eight or something. I don't know. So I have a picture here I want to show you, and this is coming from um, five twenty eight. But it's not that different a hundred years earlier. And, and it's just to kind of show you the, um, you can see these little pictures that little, see how it's got what looks like a little stick figure? And that's showing you the patriarchs. The patriarchs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Constantinople, uh, Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria, Rome. Another one I can't read. And Carthage. Who's the patriarch in Jerusalem? What does it say? No, it changes. Just like okay, you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah. Like they're all changing. The point is, it's a, it's a position. It was one of the church within, and and a phrase that will come across um, as we talk more about Eastern, the Eastern Church later on, is first among equals. So there was kind of a hierarchy. But it was not most, it was first among equals. Mm -hmm. So that person, that place was looked up to. It received the highest honor, but considered everything equal. Okay. So Leo represents an important stage in the history of this unique institution, which is the papacy. History indicates that the concept of papal rule of the whole church was established by slow and painful stages. So the idea of the Pope ruling mm -hmm. the entire church, not just the bishopric of Rome, was slow and painful stages. The term Pope itself is not crucial in the emergence of the doctrine of papal primacy. The title Papa originally expressed the fatherly care of any and every bishop of his flock. So many bishops were referred to as Pope or Papa. Mm -hmm. which was talking about the way they cared for their flock. It only began to be reserved for the Bishop of Rome in the 6th century, long after it claimed primacy. Okay? Um, so I want to say one more thing about Leo, and then we'll... And just to go back, Leo, as a reminder, is the Bishop of Rome, of Rome that goes out and met with Attila about, hey, don't attack us, and was successful. Yes. So, okay. So, Leo was, I don't have the date right here in front of me. I think it was, I don't remember. But on the day that he preached his sermon on his entrance of, of office, he was told that, you know, he had been elected the next pope. And he was actually a nobleman. He was not um, a leader in the church per se. I'm sure he had lay roles. And so in the sermon that he preached on the day of his entrance into office, he stole the, quote, glory of the blessed apostle Peter. His power lives on and his authority shines forth. Rome, who once enjoyed the, flavor as, the favor as capital of the empire, the scene of the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, was now granted a powerful new leader. Leo made his entrance into world history as the supreme head of all Christendom. I didn't know anything about Leo. Well, and here's the thing, like in Bishop Leo. Yeah, except it becomes Pope Leo. I mean, it was called Pope Leo. Was that his last name, Leo? 
Noah's was his first name. Every all of them, just like right now, we have a pope. What's his name? Paul, John Paul. What they have first names. Okay. Not, do, they, do they ever have a last name? Like I think they have a name. Pope, yes, they but they have a name, and then you choose your pope name. Oh, you do? Yeah. Is that like a new social media game? What's my pope name? <laughs> It's what you ate for breakfast this morning. <laughs> oh, my word. And the street you grew up on. Golly. So I am Pope Egg Sandwich of Maynard. <laughs> you can joke about that. That would be... Anyway. Do you <laughs> no, no, understand... No, 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 Leo. You get to choose your Pope name. Do you understand the role that the Pope plays in the Catholic Church? Yes. Am I being sacrilegious right now? Some people might think so. I... Whatever, the, but do you? Yeah, he the has conduit a, to God. He hasn't always been the authority of the whole church, and what we're touching right now in history is how in the world did that come about? Right, so don't make don't make jokes right now. It's okay to make jokes. Whatever. <laughs> I'm just wanting to. I'm trying to, to make the point as as we leave. I've I've gotten some insight. We didn't do that in the last in the last one. That it's good to sum up at the end. What was the point? Yeah, you know, well, and we've done that. this is not for the whole episode, but the point here is showing we have a question: How did the Pope become the head of the entire Catholic Church goes all over the Leo. world? Well, it's this beginnings, and as the Senate said, it's a long, slow, long, slow process with many steps. But the first time it shows up is as Leo gets—I don't even know the word. It's not inaugurated or coronated or whatever it is as he's coming into office. And is making um, on Desi- the day of his, his on his day of his entrance into office, he says the glory of the blessed apostle Peter lives on and his authority shines forth. Now he appeals in his sermon to upon this rock I will build my church, which Jesus says to Peter, and then uses that to say that that means that Peter is the head of the church, that the church was built on Peter. And so as a direct descendant of Peter, spiritual descendant of Peter, he is the head of the church. Yeah. So he laid the theoretical foundation for papal primacy. Christ promised to build his church on Peter, the rock for all ages, and the bishops of Rome are his successors in that authority which was a complete reversal of the policy policy of Constantine, who used Christianity as a tool. He had put political and religious pressure on the bishops at the Council of Nicaea to preserve the unity of the church, which he considered the cement of the empire. A century later, Leo raised the status of the bishop's office in Rome once and for all. He carried the papacy as far as theoretically as it could go. The dynasty of Peter, prince of the church, was established solemnly, decisively. So you see the difference where, where Constantine is trying to use Christianity, bringing the church and the state together to establish unity. Mm-hmm. By Leo placing himself over the church, it's kind of establishing division. Yep. Because now there's all these other patriarchies that might or might not go along with that. Yeah. It's an interesting twist in yeah, the history. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. There's a little bit more to be said about that, but we'll save that for the beginning. That'll be our kickoff. 
Well, let me say this real quick because it'll be hard to come back into this particular because it's it's referencing the scripture that Leo used. Um, the author of Turning Points was saying that there was some he felt like the use of those gospel texts flew in the face of different difficulties. And so just saying like why might that not be a correct interpretation of those scriptures? Mm-hmm. Okay. And he says one of the reasons is the Gospels makes clear that preeminence among the followers of Christ was not to be according to the pattern of the princes of the world. Jesus says that over again, who exercise Lord and authority. Christ's disciples must lead by humble service. So the idea of one being greater than others is inconsistent with Jesus' teachings. And you can see that several times throughout the scriptures. The second thing he says is Peter continued to be notoriously unstable even after he says upon he says Peter who do you say that I am and and Peter says Jesus says Peter who do you say I am Peter says um you are the son of God and he said upon this rock I will build my church and then like in the next paragraph in in Matthew Jesus turns he I can't remember what the conversation is but Peter is not going for what Jesus is saying and Jesus turns around to him and says and calls him Satan for not understanding the things that are of God. So for them to put Peter as the patriarch may not be as good as putting Jesus as the patriarch. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Because but he's, the, this author is saying Peter continues to be unstable. And then we know that Peter goes on to deny Christ three times. Now, once... Christ is resurrected. They've received the Holy Spirit. Peter becomes one of the anchors of the church and eloquent yeah. speaker and preacher and all that. But that's not but. That is the Holy Spirit's power through him. Okay? Mm-hmm. But I, I like the argument that it's very clear in Jesus' teaching that one's not supposed to be held up over another. Um, and then the third thing is the theory assumes that the grant of authority was not to Peter personally, but to his office as bishop of Rome. But this identification of authority with a particular office is nowhere evident in the Bible, in the text. Okay. So if, so the, the argument for Leo is it was, it was given the authority to Peter, and we know that the bishops of Rome are direct descendants of Peter, so they have the authority too. And the argument that the Mark Nolan turning points is saying there's nothing that says it was given to his office or his person to be handed down. Right. And I've heard people interpret that to say, when he says, upon this rock, I will build the church. He was talking about the rock of what Peter said, that you are the son of God. Right. Right. But Peter means rock. Okay. So that's kind of an interesting little twist on it right there. So we're going to continue going on next time talking about Leo and some other things that happened with him and uh, moving on through the 5th century. There's some more events in the 5th century we need to talk about. So so would you say a summary of, of 49 is the demise of Attila, how that happened? Well, the rise. Yeah, the Huns. Well, we mentioned him at the end of 48. Yeah. 49, we talk about the rise, what he did, how he conquered. And then how he fell. Well, not fell. He died. But, he died, but but he he did not. The meeting between Bishop Leo and Attila the Hun is key. Yes, and also we 
just because Attila dies doesn't mean everything goes back like it was. Now there's been all these invasions. The landscape has completely changed. Yeah. Of who lives where and who's the authority and how how are they governed and like that's all still pretty chaotic right now. You know, we've yeah. got the Western Roman Emperor moving around and the army's still failing, the economy's still not doing good. You know, we've still got issues there. And the East is becoming more separate from the West. And this move of Leo to, to say papal supremacy adds to that separating tension. So a little bit later on, we'll get into differences between East and West and flavors. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, I love talking about this period of history because I think it's one that people know very little about. Well, I agree. And, I don't know and so much of it is still very pertinent to our life today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been good. We've got we're we got a pretty good episode here. I think so. Long. I don't know if we have much to add on to it. I mean, I don't know. Did you have anything you wanted to add? I had kind of a funny story. No, let's hear it. So van camping, right? Yeah. We don't um, when we're van camping, we don't like take the stuff to build a fire and we've had a couple of fires along the way but that's just because they had firewood where we were but we're not like planning to cook our dinner and all that i pack a cooler we eat out of the cooler or we pick things up along the way yeah on the side of the road no <laughs> we stop somewhere and get food and plan for meals right mm -hmm. but i knew we were going to be in the smoky mountain park for two days so you so, brought your fishing pole you're going to cook catch so some i fish. had prepped some stuff at home and one of the things i prepped was I think it was fish tacos. Like I cooked some yummy salmon, had that on ice, and some slaw. How long is the drive? What are you talking I mean, about? You can put some fish tacos in a cooler. Not the tacos, the ingredients to make the tacos. Okay, but you got fish. I cooked it. All right, at home. Going. All right, I know. Seasoned it up, and then I made this. It was a apple cabbage slaw that was like no. Anyway, it had slaw that went on all this stuff, right? So I have all the ingredients. And so we're in the park, up on a mountain, you know, somewhere driving. And there was a camp, there was a picnic area that Tim had in mind that he knew. He's like, okay, we'll go there. Well, we get there and the parking lot's closed. Like you have to park right there on the road and you can walk in and use it. But it was um, March, early March, and a lot of things weren't open yet. Because a lot of times they're still frozen. Mm -hmm. This particular day they weren't. So we got taco shells that, they're not shells, they're like um, corn tortillas that if y'all was cooking it at home, you're supposed to heat them up so you can roll them. So we get out and we like wrap them in some toilet, some, uh, toilet paper, no, <laughs> some paper towels, fold them over some paper towels, open up the hood and lay them on the engine and close the hood. Mm. And then we just packed up all of our stuff and got everything ready. And then we got ready to go to the table. We just opened up the hood and take our tortillas, and they're all nice and soft. We can roll up our taco. It was so good. So you just so, use the engine, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So then a couple of nights later, when we're in uh, South Carolina camping, we had pizza left from several meals back. We just heated up our pizza on the engine, too. It was great. Oh, my gosh. Y'all, that's out there. <laughs> It's been recorded. It's out there forever. People driving by like, oh, they got car trouble. No, they're just cooking their lunch. They're just cooking. They're heating up some food. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, it's going to be a big episode next time. So we will see you on episode 5-0. Book them down. 
Thanks for listening to History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast, brought to you by One Thing Only. For more information and related content, head over to onethingonly.org and click on History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. There you will find related content as well as a way to ask questions and make comments. We want to hear from you. You can find us on all your streaming podcast platforms. Please rate and review. Thanks again.